You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. We have been through this series on community, our communal life as the people of God. That's what we've been walking through all summer. Pastor Russ started out that series by talking about the priorities of community, talked about worship and community, talked about hospitality and community, talked about burden bearing and community. Last week, I preached on prayer and community, how we pray for one another. I come this morning to preach on the subject, the counterintuitive subject of solitude and community, two words that seem in direct opposition to one another. Being together and being alone. Being alone and being together. Human flourishing is having integrity between our outer lives and our inner lives. Khalil Gibran, the Lebanese-American author of the 20th century, he wrote this very well-known novel, The Prophet. I ain't going to front. I ain't read it. I don't like to front when I quote books, all right? Because <laughs> some of y'all are going to come to me after the service. Oh, I love that book. And I'll be like, mm-hmm, it's really good. <laughs> However, there's a, there's a famous passage that's often quoted towards the beginning of that book. And it's often quoted at weddings. And it speaks of two lovers together. But I think it also equally applies so well to the Bible's vision of community. Here's what this little poem says. It says, sing and dance together and be joyous, but let each one of you be alone. Even as the strings of the lute are alone, though they quiver with the same music. I I love this image as a musician and as a pianist because most musicians or maybe even non-musicians in here will remember that when you sit down at a piano or another instrument and you combine three notes together at the same time, it becomes a triad. Okay, all right, music theory. Or you can also call it a chord if you'd like. Uh, And yet, as I've come to realize many years with a piano, is that sometimes you sit down and you hit the chord and you realize that one or more of those notes is not actually in tune with itself. And therefore, the harmony is all out of whack. Because each of those notes stands by itself. It makes its own sound. And it has to be in tune with itself to create harmony with the notes of a chord. The Bible's message is for the community of God to be and to live in harmony with one another. It says to put on love, which binds all things together in harmony. But presupposing harmony is being in tune with ourselves. How do we get in tune with ourselves? We've taken a lot of measures at this church, I think, to fight against individualism within the Christian church. This vision of the faith that that ultimately Christianity is about me and it's about my relationship with God and y'all better get out of the way. We've tried to align ourselves with the communal vision and the practice of the New Testament and the global and historic church. However, as we have done that, I've recently felt the need to emphasize, though, that following Jesus and living in communion with God is a very personal reality. That's inescapable. We all have a call upon our lives. For here's the thing. Everyone in here has an inner life. It's that you inside your head. 
It's that dialogue you've been having since the beginning of this service, even throughout the first part of this sermon, probably thinking about what you're going to eat after the service because you're hungry. It's what makes a human a human. We have a rational soul full of thoughts and emotions. And we've had it ever since our first memories could be formed as a small child. Whether you're a child listening to me in here or whether you're an adult, you are you and I am me. I have no clue what it's like to be inside your head. And thankfully, you have no clue what it's like to be inside of mine. The inner life is our direct connection to ourselves. And it's our direct connection or disconnection to the one who made us uniquely in his image, our maker. We also have an outer life. It's our life in community. It's our life as households. It's our relationship to one another. We've been talking a lot about that, exploring different uh, practices and, and aspects of that. But here's the truth. What is going on in your inner life directly affects what's going on in your outer life. Who am I alone affects who I am and community. And those realities, as we know, can get quite out of sync with one another. We can play a part in community that actually feels like a complete sham when we get alone, can't we? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't know if you know who Bonhoeffer was, but he was this 20th century German pastor in the early 20th century. He came to study uh, theology in America, and he was transformed by, by his encounters with the black church in Harlem. He then went back to Germany and resisted the Nazi regime and was eventually martyred for it. He has a famous book on community called Life Together. And he says this. He says, let the one who cannot be alone beware of community. But let the one who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. Always attached to by what other people are saying, how other people are feeling and responding to that. But the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, or despair. I want to explore the topic of silence and solitude because the reality of the inner life is unavoidable. And the Christian faith has long taught throughout the globe, throughout all of its saints and teachers, that, and, and beginning with Jesus himself we're going to see, that the way to cultivate the inner life is by the practice of solitude and silence. This is not a privileged reality. This is not a, an American fascination with getting away from distraction. It is an ancient part of our faith, though one that's often underemphasized. Jesus talks a lot about the outer life, life in relationship to your neighbor. But Jesus talks a lot about your inner life, too, life in relationship to the Father, right? I want to explore this in two ways through our passage today. I want to look at solitude in the life of Jesus and solitude in our lives. Solitude in the life of Jesus and solitude in our lives. I choose this text from Mark's Gospel today, from the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, because if we read this text right, it reveals something very crucial, very essential, and very unavoidable if you want to know the secret of who Jesus was. If you want to get to know the life of Jesus and how he worked in the world. But even as I say that, i got to say this, because it should be obvious, but this truth is obscured. Last week I gave you this basic theological principle to walk away with. If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus, right? He who has seen me has seen the Father. This week my basic theological principle that I have to impart is, if you want to know what life should look like, look at Jesus. We Christians celebrate that Jesus saved us by his death. 
and by his resurrection, we also believe Jesus saved us by his life. We are to look at Jesus as our model for how to engage the world. We follow Jesus. We don't just simply worship Jesus. And in too many Christian communities, that reality is obscured. People worship Jesus, but don't expect their life to be formed into the way his life was formed into. Instead of believing Romans 8, which says that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. So that's a basic theological principle. That's a freebie, a paradigm. The shape of this narrative in our, in our passage is like this. It's like a solitude sandwich, okay? Because the first part is action in community. Action and community. The middle part, one verse, where the hinge is, solitude. The, the third part, action and community. Solitude is nestled smack dab in the middle of all that action, all that activism of Jesus, being with the people. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus is having a late night. He's already had a long day. All right, he's been traveling, he's been preaching. He got to this town in Galilee, and, and Peter's mother in law was sick, so he had to go heal her. And it's a long night, and you got to picture uh, ancient Galilee, you know, mother in law life. Uh, uh, <laughs> you have to picture ancient Galilee, it's a very dense city. These villages are, are super dense, the living quarters are very tight together with common courtyards, sort of like an apartment complex. And, and Jesus is burning the candle late into the night. He's being surrounded by hurting people. The, the, it says all the city is there. And, and they come to Jesus because they know they can get help from him. Jesus is about that life. He, he's doing the radical work of ministry on the street. He's with the poor. He's with the marginalized, the sick. He's with the undesirables, the forgotten, the neglected, the oppressed, He's active in community. Please see that. Because that's, that's what we're supposed to be too. But it says that early the next morning, Jesus escapes the expectations and the demands placed upon him. By that very work of action and community, by his very activism, he escapes to a desolate place, a lonely place, and escapes to pray. Meaning Jesus sought his inner life in communion with God, and like Elijah of old, as our scripture reading was today, Jesus is driven away from his prophetic work, and he's in the wilderness. And there he seeks to meet the divine whisper of God, that stillness. He had to get up early in the morning because as soon as the sun came up, workers would be in the field. Workers would be in the city. The village would be bustling because that culture really worked off of the, the solar calendar. When the sun came up. So he has to go away into the hills to, to get away from the village and go find a solitary place where he can be alone. Jesus had to fight against the grain of his surrounding environment to carve out time for solitude. Ancient people didn't just have this very spaced out still life, so different from your own, living in urban Washington, D.C. That's not true. Jesus had to work against the grain of his environment to carve out time for solitude. You know what he also had to do? He also had to frustrate people. He had to frustrate the expectations of those who were closest to him. Do you notice that? He goes up before dawn to seek this place of solitude, and evidently he lingers there. He's just enjoying the presence of God. He lingers there long enough to where old Peter, all right, 
If you don't know Peter's place on the team, Peter's always trying to keep Jesus on brand. <laughs> Peter, Peter, his job is like a, a, a professional coach. He's saying, now, Jesus, you're very gifted. You're very good. You have the words of life, but you've got to be professional. You have people out there, and they have demands on you, and you've got to keep your business going. You've got to do things the way they're supposed to be done, Jesus. And that's why he said everyone is looking for you. You can hear the frustration, the anxiety, the expectation in Peter's voice. There are many Peters out there in Christian communities today. Oh, you've got to stay well-branded. You've got to stay slick. You need to be growing. You need to keep the customers in the church satisfied with your religious goods and services. Jesus frustrates that spirit for pastors and parishioners alike. So Peter finds him and he says, everyone is looking for you. And then, of course, Jesus' response is, I'm not looking for them right now. Sorry, I have other places to go. But, but Jesus, there's more you could do here. I have to go where my father tells me to go. Of course, there's more work for me to do. I have to go over here, he says. He was so nurtured in his communion with the Father. He was so nurtured in his inner life that he was working on a different sense of direction and a different sense of time from everyone around him. This pattern in Jesus' life is so ubiquitous. It's not like just this one text. Richard Foster, in his Celebration of Discipline, he lays out this list, and I want to lay it out for you too. Jesus, when he started his earthly ministry, how did he start it? He spent, he spent 40 days alone in the desert to fast, to be tempted, to learn how to hunger and listen to God. Before Jesus chose his 12 disciples, he spent the entire night alone up in the desert hills, Luke 6. When he received the news of John the Baptist's death, Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart from his friends to grieve. Matthew 14. After Jesus had the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went up to the hills by himself. Matthew 14. In our passage, following a long night of work in the morning, a great while before the sun came up, he went off to a lonely place. Mark 1. When the 12 apostles are sent out and they go and they go on that miraculous healing message, uh, mission, they start casting out demons. They come back and they're like, oh, Jesus, man, it was so exciting. The demons came out. We were praying and stuff was happening. And that's when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from lightning, you know, like lightning from the sky. He tells the disciples after the, their victorious ministry, he says, come away by yourself to a lonely place. Don't get caught up in all your successes. Don't get caught up in all the things you're able to do now. Go away by yourself. Following the healing of a leper, Jesus withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. And as Jesus prepared for his highest and most holy work, where did he go? He went and sought the solitude of a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus seeks solitude for the preparation of the work he has to do. He also seeks solitude for comfort in the midst of his griefs, in the midst of his fears, in the midst of anxieties. Jesus seeks solitude after the work he has done. Do you notice that? After the good work is done. Jesus seeks the vital connection to the Father because it's in that connection that he remembers who he is. 
He remembers what he is to do, and he remembers how he is to do it. The same should be true for us. For the work we must do, we must seek out solitude. For the griefs that we have and the anxieties that we have and the fears that we have, we must seek out solitude. After our work is over and after we've been successful, after we fail, we must seek out solitude, even while the, while the applause is still ringing from the crowd. We have to seek the vital connection to the Father because it's in that connection that we remember who we are, what we are supposed to be doing, and how we are supposed to do it. That is solitude in the life of Jesus. It's an amazing, repetitive pattern that you can't get away from. But now, I want to look at solitude in our lives. It is so true that the assault upon silence and solitude in our modern life is profound, is it not? It's funny when you start reading authors who write books on solitude, sometimes those books will be 20 or 30 years old. And it's kind of funny because... uh, They'll talk about how you're tempted to feel, uh, fill the empty space of your life by reading another book or watching TV or sending a letter or writing another email. <laughs> Some of that still applies today. Uh, but for many of us from our childhood now to our adulthood, the means by which we can keep ourselves from the void of silence and from solitude, the means are just plentiful. The glowing square rectangles combined with the advent of social media have made it so that we can, at any time of day or night, we can choose to live in somebody else's story. We can choose to be distracted by the goings-on out there from dawn to dusk, even while we're laying in our beds at 2 or 3 a.m. And all of this social media news, it it is this essentially. It is living everyone else's life except our own. The news, the shows, the social media text boxes, they're just infinite sources of distraction from facing our very lives. And our very lives are the only thing we've been given in this world. That's it. Everything else can be stripped away. Instead, we are moved hither and thither by the strong magnetic force of entertainment that pulls us. And the industries out there, of course, they rely upon our continual distraction and our desire for numbing entertainment because they make money off of it. They make it to where it's more and more addictive so that their profits can become more and more and increased. All the while, our lives become emptier and become more anxious. All the wealth that America has to offer The richest nation in the world is really a cover for such a deep spiritual, emotional, and physical poverty of existence. We narcotize ourselves away from the emptiness of our own lives. And ironically, it may be the rich in America who are suffering from this most keenly because they can afford all the luxuries of distraction. But the struggle isn't just out there, is it, friends? (laughs) It's also in here. It's also in here. We struggle to enter into the life of solitude because doing so requires facing the void of our own loneliness. Facing the void that is us alone. Because we often feel restless, we feel anxious, and we we actually feel afraid when we're truly alone. I want you to ponder in your mind right now what keeps you from being alone for a long time. Keep it on your mind as we go forward. 
Ruth Haley Barton, who is a spiritual director, and she's been transformative for many. She wrote a book called The Invitation to Silence and Solitude. She talks about being in her 30s. She was very gifted for ministry. She was writing books. She was going around speaking. She was getting after the work, but she was completely just utterly tense and miserable on the inside. And so her spiritual director said to her, said, Ruth, you are like a jar of river water. You're all stirred up and murky. What you need to be is to be still so that the sediment can sink and your heart can become clear again. Henry Nouwen, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century, says it like this. He says, I've never met anyone seriously interested in following Jesus or in the spiritual life that didn't have a growing desire for silence. He says, we have to enter the heart, the center of our existence, and become familiar with the complexities of our inner lives. As soon as we feel at home in our own house, discover all the dark corners as well as the light spots, the closed doors as well as the drafty rooms, our confusion will evaporate, our anxiety will diminish, and we will become capable of creative work and spiritually informed life. This struggle is very challenging, though. And it's not a struggle that should be taken to be achieved in any sort of measurable sense on some sort of, sort of short-term productive calendar. It is a lifelong journey to learn how to be with God and to learn how to bask in God's presence. What happens, though, when our inner life, speaking of community, what happens when, what happens when our inner life is so out of tune? How does it affect the harmony of community? Let me dig in here. If we haven't found that our hearts are in tune within with the love of God, we're constantly going to be looking for outward attachments to satisfy the void that is our loneliness. It's often said, and I find it to be true, lonely unmarried people make lonely married people. You cannot fill the void of your internal life merely with outward relationships and community. If you try, you're always going to be disappointed by what you can get out of another person and what you can get out of a church community. You'll eventually, as I've seen it often as a pastor, become bitter because other people aren't fulfilling your heart. Because our other people weren't made to fulfill all of who you are. In a different way, if inside we are totally unaware of what's going in our hearts, we're like a, that jar of river water all stirred up. We often are like pinballs in a pinball machine. We're bouncing anxiously, and I'm preaching to myself, we're bouncing anxiously from one emotion to the next. And therefore, we're never able to be truly with each other or with our neighbors or be emotionally present with those who are hurting. We become so anxious and frenetic, victims of our own calendars, that we don't show up to serve when we're called. We aren't able to sacrifice and suffer and sweat for others because our our cups feel constantly empty. We can't even say what the priorities of our lives are because we don't know our own hearts. Here's another one. If we haven't learned to silence our lives and listen to that divine whisper that Elijah heard, not in the the earthquake, not not in the great torrent of wind, but in the still and, and silent voice, if we haven't learned to hear that divine whisper, we're actually just not trained in listening or being silent. And therefore, we're not going to be able to listen to one another well. When they offer us words of guidance or correction, we talk a lot. We seek to justify ourselves. We haven't learned that holy and spiritually mature discipline of shutting up. We don't show that holy curiosity of, God, what do you want me to hear right now? 
God, show me your way. Lead me in your path. And this is so crucial for healthy community and especially healthy cross-cultural community like our own. The teachability of a quiet heart is able to engage lines of cultural difference because we know our own hearts, we know who we are, and we're ready to listen and learn to other people's hearts. Cultural intelligence is being ready to ask, what do I not know and what do I need to realize? How do I need to grow? And I want to say that that discipline is nurtured in being quiet by yourself with God, stopping the constant hum of talking, of self-justifications, of explanations, of, well, I know you think I did that wrong, but if you could understand why I did it, if you understand my motives, then I'll be justified. You won't think I'm wrong. Solitude is learning how to shut up in God's love. (laughs) Our lack of solitude and silence also affects community and our own households because if we don't know how to pause and rest and wait, We won't allow others the freedom to do so. Our households become oppressive, frenetic. Our children become addicted just as much as we do to the noise of distraction. And life begins to swirl into chaos and into muddy water all the time. We need help. I need help. I have learned so deeply during the pandemic, and I'm still learning it. The pandemic was very challenging for me because all... Much of my activism of ministry was taken away from me. I was no longer here. I've been a pastor for years, and before that, a worship leader for years. From the time I was 10 years old, I was on stage almost every Sunday. When the pandemic hit, I had to come to grips. Who am I without this? Jesus called me, but who is Jesus and who is me without ministering to people like this? I had to come to deeper grips with my own dysfunctions. But in the midst of that, with help, I had to come and I got to come to deeper grips with who Jesus is. And that Jesus is not someone who merely wants to be idealized, who merely wants to be worshipped, but who wants to be with me and who wants me to listen to him and to follow him. I began to and have begun to reorient myself in a transformative way Uh, because it kept me uh, out of this swirl of constant ministry activity because I couldn't be with people in the same way. I had to learn how to pray and how that be my ministry. And I sought the help of a spiritual director during the pandemic, as all of us on staff actually have spiritual directors, someone to help guide and lead the way in the spiritual life, to help be an accompanying presence to follow Jesus. So friends, I'm on a journey along with you, and that journey is into my own heart. Your journey that I'm on along with you is your journey into your own heart. It's being able to articulate what you find there, and in doing so, I trust and believe that you're going to begin to encounter Jesus in deeper ways and hear that divine whisper. How do we apply some of this? First, seek a guide. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a wise friend. Maybe it's getting a spiritual director. You can write me about that. What is a spiritual director? It's just someone to be alongside you on the journey who's thought about the spiritual life deeply and who trains you as they are trained to just try to listen to the Holy Spirit. What is God doing in your life? Find a counselor. Talk about your moments of solitude. 
articulate those with people. One key element of solitude is find a time. Find some times in your life where you are going to be able to purposefully enter into the space alone. Start small, because it's better to experience small successes with small goals than large failures with large goals. (laughs) Allow the art of solitude to grow within your heart and let the spirit slowly do his work in your life, expanding your capacity for desire and your capacity just to be in the presence of God. Here's another application. Make time for one another. If you are married or you're members of an intimate household with other people, it's your task to care about the inner life of the people in your life and those within your house. It was Melissa, my wife's idea, two years ago to begin the practice of giving one another a silent retreat every year, three or four days long. I received that gift last week, and it was the gift of, to be able to enter into silence for four days, which with three little kids is a gift. So find a time, make time for one another, find a space. Maybe that's a corner of your house. I have a corner in one room in my house, and it has a candle by it, and it's a space. You can carve out a room. You can carve out a physical place in Washington, D.C., and it's that space you go to to escape. It's a desolate place where you're not going to be surrounded by all the distractions and all the demands. Turn off the notifications on your phone. Walk through the Arboretum. What is it for you? Walk through the monastery, all right? We have so many great spaces to just walk. Find a space in your life like Jesus. Find simple prayers to pray, not long and complicated prayers. Prayers like this, ever-present God, here with me now. Help me to be here with you. Prayers that become refrains in your life and a way to invite a posture of just being with God. Every day in the Daily Prayer Project, we give space for silence intentionally for this reason, a a space to pause. And as you live this life of solitude, you have to fight against the notions of productivity. You have to lean lean into silence like like you lean into spending time with a beloved friend in your life. When you hang out with a friend, if it's a healthy relationship, you're not often going into that space of friendship or into a conversation with your beloveds in your life saying, what are we going to achieve right now? I want to see noticeable results after my time with you. I want to learn some things. I want to feel better about myself. No, we enter into the time with our beloveds to just enjoy their presence and to enjoy them. What would it look like to to be with God like that? To stop looking at God like a vending machine, something to just get from, but to trust that the heart of Jesus is good And it's good to be with Jesus. It's good, like John, to to lean against him. And the space of solitude is ultimately like that, leaning into the place of love. Because you were created for that, each of you individually. Underneath all of your desires for all the things in your life, as we've talked about in the liturgy, is a core hunger. It's a core desire, and that desire can only be fulfilled by the nutrient who is God. (laughs) The amazing thing is also true, though. That God desires you more than you desire him. That we love because God first loved us. If you feel like a wandering prodigal in your spiritual life, which I know many of you do, if you feel far from the presence of God, let your mind go back to what it means to be a prodigal. 
It means to see a father running from far off away to embrace you. The father responds by embracing the prodigal. Solitude is an invitation to come into the embrace of God. And in that space, you will find that your heart will be tuned. And it will be tuned to the melody of love, the love of Jesus. And as we tune our hearts continually to that love, we are able to respond to each other in harmony. That's why when Paul in Colossians 3 is talking about communal life, he says, above all, these put on love, which binds things together in perfect harmony. So seek out the presence of the Father, seek the heart of solitude, and seek that like Jesus did. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.